Okay. Now, you've, you've studied uh, the chapter on Buddhism so far? Okay. Good. So, let me ask you this question. Do Buddhists believe in God? Who wants to be the first one to raise their hand? Remember, God is watching. Okay, nobody's raising their hand. What do you think? Just, there's no right or wrong answer. There's just an answer. So, do Buddhists believe in God? Yes. Okay, we have one they don't. Okay. Does anybody think they do? Okay. Does anybody think that Buddhists really don't know? Okay, good. Well, the answer is, we don't know. You know, in India, at the time of the Buddha, they had a hierarchy of gods. But they didn't have just one god. That came about because of the Jews in the desert. They were the ones who started the controversy of only one god. And when the Buddha came to understand that human life is very uncomfortable and filled with suffering, he didn't petition any of the gods to help end human suffering. And he didn't blame any of the gods for human suffering. He realized humans were suffering because they were born with original ignorance, not original sin. They were born sort of stupid, and they didn't see the world the way it really is. So they kept doing things and saying things and thinking things that caused them to suffer. And the Buddha realized that, and at the age of 35, he achieved nirvana and didn't think, speak, or act that way any longer. He was able to end his own suffering and his karma and his future rebirths. So we look at the Buddha as a human being. And he was a perfect human being in the sense that he no longer had greed, he only had generosity. He no longer had hatred and anger, he only had kindness and compassion. And he no longer was deluded or ignorant, he was now wise and insightful. So we aspire to that level of perfection of a human being. But he never was anything more than a human being. He didn't become a god or a deity. He became a man who perfected himself. Now, you might wonder if there were any women who also achieved nirvana and perfected themselves. And yes, there were. His wife was one of the arahants, a nun who achieved her perfection. So in Buddhism, we have men, and we have women, and we have monks, and we have nuns, and all of them have the ability to achieve nirvana, their perfection, and never suffer again. Which is pretty remarkable for 2,600 years ago, because women weren't looked at as being equal to men. But the Buddha realized they all had the same potential, men and women, the potential to achieve nirvana. So people wonder why I became a Buddhist, because I'm much too tall. And 
I became a Buddhist because, number one, why is the world in need of a religion today? And I think we're in need of a religion today because we're all going to die. Each and every one of us has a limited time schedule. And pretty soon, one day, we'll be dead. Bummer. Now, you're closer to birth than to death, so it probably isn't a big issue for you right now. But you know what? As you get older, and as your parents die, and your pets die, and your relatives die, and you sort of realize that you might be next. So it was the 1960s. I was in high school. My hair looked just like yours when I was in high school. And look what happened. Bummer. So I'm in high school, and it was important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So I was born a Lutheran, and I gave it up. I said, I'm not going to be a Lutheran anymore. I'm going to be an agnostic. I don't know. I can sit on the fence. I don't have to define myself in that way any longer. And it was sort of a rebellion, but it really felt good to be independent from what you were supposed to do. So the 60s was sort of a fun time to be alive. And then, and then, I turned 30. I was one of those. Don't trust me, I'm 30, you know. I'll be dead soon, I'm 30. And I took it to heart, and I said, man, if I'm going to die soon, I need a religion so I can die well. So I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions, and I read every chapter in that book, and I read the chapter on Buddhism twice, and I said, I'm going to be a Buddhist. Because it made the most sense in that book. So I got another book, the phone book. And I found a meditation center. And I started to meditate. And it was terrible. Oh, it's just sitting there doing nothing. Cold, cross-legged on the floor. Back hurt, knees hurt. Mind was agitated. I could be watching football. And here I am sitting doing nothing. You know. But then I heard my first Dharma talk from one of the monks that lived at the meditation center. And I woke up. I said, man, I want to see the world the way this guy sees the world. I want to talk about the world the way this guy talks about the world. So I continued to meditate, and I continued to listen to the Dharma talks and read books on Buddhism and started to read some of the ancient texts on Buddhism, like the Dhammapada, which is so cool. And after a year of practicing meditation and listening to Dharma talks, I said, I want to be a Buddhist. I wanted to define myself as a Buddhist. What do I need to do? And at the meditation center, they said, well, we have a little ceremony that we do, and and we can make you a Buddhist. I said, okay, sign me up. So one Sunday after the Sunday service, myself and two others became official Buddhists. And when I became an official Buddhist, I got a certificate saying I was an official Buddhist suitable for framing. And it had my Buddhist name. I was given a Buddhist name. So cool. So my Buddhist name is Kusala. K-U-S-A-L-A. And that's my website, kusala.org. 2,500 pages. Whoa. I have YouTube videos. I have podcasts. I have Dharma instruction. If you go to my Facebook page, I have pictures of cats. I got it all covered. 
So, kusla. What does kusla mean? Kusla means skillful or wholesome. Now, I was impressed when they gave me that name because what that meant to me was that they saw that I was already skillful and wholesome. And they said, oh, Kusla, you're so deluded, man. No, you are so unskillful and so unwholesome. We gave you that name, so every time somebody says Kusla, it reminds you of what direction you need to go in. Those Buddhists are a tricky bunch. Okay, so then I took the three refuges, and I got the five precepts. So the three refuges are, number one, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Buddha as a man, not a god. A man who found his way through his own insight and creativity. He found his way to the end of suffering and became a perfect human being. Now, the cool part about being a Buddha is anybody can be a Buddha. It's the same way if you want to be president, you need to get elected. If you want to be a Buddha, you need to achieve nirvana. So the word Buddha means one who is awake. One who is awake. So what we need to do is wake up. Wake up to the true nature of our life. The true nature of reality. Okay, so I took refuge in the Buddha as a guy who found the path, who found the answer to my suffering. And what he did was he left behind what he did called the Dharma, his talks. Now, Dharma has 16 different meanings, but in this case, two of the most important meanings are Dharma, what the Buddha said, Dharma, ultimate reality. So sometimes what the Buddha said and ultimate reality are the same thing. So I take refuge in his teachings because his teachings will lead me to the end of suffering. If the Buddha right now was in this room and I said, Buddha, can you make me enlightened? He said, he would say, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I can only tell you what I did and then the rest is up to you. So being a Buddhist, we don't pray to the Buddha to make us enlightened We don't have faith that the Buddha will make us enlightened. What we do is we have a path that we need to follow in order to achieve our freedom from suffering. And then I take refuge in the monks and nuns, the Sangha, as a living example of the practice of Buddhism in the world today. Now, I haven't met an enlightened monk or nun yet. They're probably out there, and I may not be able to recognize the fact that they are enlightened. But what they are doing is they're practicing Buddhism. They gave up having a family. They gave up having a job or a cool car or the latest shoes. And what they're doing is they're working on themselves. They're meditating. They're studying the Dharma. They're teaching. They're going on retreats. They're doing all the things necessary to wake up. Now, when you think about waking up, this is the part I really like about Buddhism, is you don't have to go anywhere to wake up. You don't have to go to India, join an ashram, be a vegetarian. All you need to do is become aware of the fact that you are already enlightened. So all the work we do is to allow us to come to that reality. 
that I'm already enlightened. But I got a couple things that prevent me from realizing my enlightened, all enlightenment, all my greed and my hatred and my delusion block my ability to see that I'm already there. So it would be like you wanting to go to Torrance. And then you'd ask somebody, well, how do you get to Torrance? And they'd say, well, you already are. Well, it doesn't feel like Torrance. How is Torrance supposed to feel? Well, it feels different to everybody that visits Torrance. Some people like the fact that there's not much traffic. Some people think there's too much traffic. Some people think the gas prices are pretty low in Torrance. But then some people think the gas prices are pretty high in Torrance, depending what gas station they go to. So how do you know if it's really Torrance? What's the essence of Torrance? Where does the soul of Torrance live? Can you find it? And what you find is Torrance is just sort of a word that encompasses all the experiences in this community. Whoa, man. Well, then, I must be here. And then you wake up to the fact that you're here. How cool is that? So you have this enlightenment thing, and you ask people, what's it like? How cool is it? Where do I need to go? No place. Very cool. Already there. And then you wake up. Man, I'm already here. I've always been here. I never realized that before. Okay. So enlightenment is a pretty trippy thing. But there are certain ways to get there. And the most important way to get to your enlightenment is to practice the five precepts. They are the foundation of your Buddhist practice and your Buddhist meditation. Five precepts. Number one, first precept. I will practice not to take life. Now, the word practice is really important because... We, haven't, we don't have the ability, in, the most, in most cases, not to take life. We just take life. Don't even think about it. It's what we do as humans. Mosquito lands on your arm. What do you do? You kill it. Cockroach in the kitchen. What do you do? You spray it. Wish it a good rebirth. Problem solved. You know? Got ants on the counter. 100,000 ants on the counter. What do you do? You kill them all to get rid of the ants. But now you're a Buddhist. And now the first precept is not to kill. And now you got a cockroach in your kitchen. And you're there, and you say, okay, how do I get rid of it if I don't kill it? So you might get a jar and chase that little guy all around and finally get him in the jar and then take him outside, knowing he'll be back. You'll be back. Because that's where the food and the water is, in your kitchen. He likes it there. But you didn't kill it, okay? You understood the value of life, how important it is that life is special and unique, and it is a miracle. That cockroach made it onto Earth. Of all the planets in our solar system, maybe in the cosmos, That cockroach could not live on any of those planets, but it could live on Earth. And somehow, it had a little mom and dad that got together and made the little cockroach. And it ended up in your kitchen. The miracle of the cockroach in your kitchen. And you just saw it as an impediment, something to prevent you from having that peanut butter sandwich until you got rid of the cockroach. Wow. 
Life is cool, you know? Life is impossible in any other planet but ours, in our solar system. I'm sure there are other planets, other solar systems. There's life too. Probably have the same teachings. They just look a little different than we do. So the first precept you hold is not to take life. But can you hold it in a genuine way? No. And that's the irony of a spiritual path. Spiritual paths are paradoxical. They make sense up to a point. But in order to sustain our life, we need to eat life. We need to consume life. Their life gives our life a sustainability and a future. Now, you might say, well, okay, I know this, this girl, and, and she's a vegetarian, and, and she doesn't kill, and she seems healthy. Well, you know what? She kills the broccoli. Have you ever heard broccoli scream as you pull it out of the ground? Oh, it's a terrible sound. So even if you're a vegetarian, you are eating life. The lowest life form available to us that will sustain our life. And thankfully, we're at the top of the food chain. So we don't have to worry too much about other life eating us. You know? But back in the old days, in the real old days, when we were all hunters and gatherers, man, we'd be running like crazy. Because we'd have those buffaloes chasing us, and those dinosaurs. Well, maybe not the dinosaurs. But we had a lot of things chasing us. Because we probably tasted pretty good to them. You know? And then we got smart. We found our sense of self. We found our intellect. Changed us forever. Second precept. I will practice not to take what is not given. Practice not to take what is not given. So that's different than stealing. It means it has to be offered to you. So you go to Denny's restaurant. You get a hamburger with fries. And on the table is some ketchup. But you know what? The waitress never said you could use the ketchup. And you're practicing to be a Buddhist. And it wasn't offered to you. So you raise your hand to get the waitress's attention. And you say, would it be okay for me to use the ketchup? And then she looks at you and says, well, that's why it's there. And then you just go, oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to be a Buddhist. That's all. She walks away in disgust. Those Buddhists always giving us a hard time. But that's how it works. Not being offered, you can't use it. So you find a pen on the desk after class. And you need a pen. And you don't want to go buy a new one. And nobody's going to claim it. And you say to yourself, well, what could it hurt if I took the pen? Who's it going to hurt? And then you say to yourself, but I'm a Buddhist, and I took the precept not to take what is not given. So you walk away and buy a new pen. Number three, I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. Man, this is a tough one. 2018, Me Too movement. Everybody's going, hey... Don't have sex with me. So how do you hold that precept not to indulge in sexual misconduct without knowing what sexual misconduct is? So let me tell you what Bhikkhu Bodhi said in his book, The Four Noble Truths, about sexual misconduct. 
He said there were four things as a Buddhist we should not do. And we should not do them because it increases suffering. See, we don't really have right and wrong in Buddhism. We have more suffering and less suffering. So if it increases suffering, it's unskillful. And that's not good because more people suffer. So, okay. So what's the first thing? Don't have sex with people that are married. Wow, well, you think that makes perfect sense. But all you need to do is watch one episode of TMZ, and you know they're breaking that left and right. So why not have sex with people that are married? Because they're in a committed relationship. They may be having children. They are building a family unit, and a family are the building blocks of every community. It needs to be respected. It needs to be understood how important it is to have a family unit. And you don't want to involve yourself in that in an unskillful way. Number two, don't have sex with people who are engaged because they're going to be a family unit and you don't want to give them any second thoughts. Maybe I shouldn't marry this guy or gal. Maybe this guy is better. But this guy could be a flake. He just wants to have sex. And it ruins the engagement, which would ruin the family and the possibility of having children. Number three, Don't have sex with children because they are children and they are being supported by their parents and they don't want to have sex. They want to go to Disneyland because they're children. So leave them alone. And number four, the most important one of all, don't have sex with people against their will. And you've probably watched some of that Supreme Court stuff with Judge Kavanaugh. People against the will. We had a woman said, I didn't want to have sex. They would try to have sex with me. I didn't want to have sex. Judge Kavanaugh said, I did not do that. It sounds like somebody did it, but it wasn't me. So, bummer. But you could avoid all of that by not having sex with people against the will. So we need to be very clever and skillful and insightful and compassionate before we have sex because it can cause a lot of suffering. It can also cause a lot of children. We got 7 billion people. Wow, 7 billion. You would think people would figure out that maybe humans need to get spayed and neutered too. But no. All the cats I take care of, they're spayed and neutered. They seem to be fine. But humans, no, let's encourage them to have some more children. But we live in a closed environment. This is Earth. We only have so much room, so much air, so much water, so much food. And even today, every day, there are millions of people that go to sleep hungry because they couldn't get enough food to get rid of their hunger. Oh, man. So anyway... Monks and nuns. See, we don't have sex. Now, why is that? Why did the Buddha say, you know, if you're a monk or a nun, you can't have sex? He said that because we live in an economy of generosity. People give us money. But they don't give us a lot of money. They give us some money. They give us enough money to meet our needs. But if you have an intimate relationship and you have children, you're going to need a lot of money. 
Number one, you probably want to have a house, some place to live, maybe a nice apartment. Then you want to have health insurance in case anybody gets sick. And they always get sick. And then you live in L.A., so you probably want to have a car because the public transportation isn't that good. And then the children are really smart, and they get to go to a Catholic high school, and now it's time for college tuition fees. Cost a fortune to send somebody to college. So you need a lot of money to have a family and to have children. Buddhist monks and nuns don't have a lot of money. Most of us just have enough money. But the most important reason Buddhist monks and nuns don't have sex is this. Because our job is to become free. And we're not going to be free in any relationship. I don't care what kind of relationship you think would make you free. It does not make you free. So who wants to be free? Usually when I say that, no hands go up. They'd much rather be in the prison of relationship, marital bliss, filled with children. Okay, very cool. I've got eight cats that I take care of. That's my little family. I feed them. They don't even say thank you. They just walk away. I sort of like that. Okay, number four. I will speak skillfully. I take the precept not to speak unskillfully. So what is unskillful speech? It is false speech, harsh speech, malicious speech, gossip, and idle chatter. Those are the four kinds of unskillful speech that create more suffering rather than less suffering. And then last but not least... I accept the training precept not to indulge in intoxicants. Now, intoxicants could be marijuana, it could be alcohol, it could be anything that sort of makes you high. Okay. And some of the medication that doctors prescribe to us make us high, but it's medication, and it's designed to make us well. So that doesn't count. But you go out, and you get a little bag of heroin, and that's getting high, And it could kill you, but it also makes you stupid, and it could put you to sleep, and it could make you addicted. And now your life is screwed up because you wanted to get high. But you already knew that. So the idea of not getting high is you don't want to be stupid. You're spending a lot of money, well, your parents are, but you're spending a lot of time to get an education to be somebody. And to be somebody takes a lot of work. And everybody's helping you along. The peer group is helping you be somebody. Your parents are helping you be somebody. The school's helping you be somebody. And pretty soon, you're going to be somebody. How cool is that? But being somebody, there's a lot of responsibility. So you want to be a good example because now you're somebody. And you don't want to have the young people in your life look at you as a role model if you get high all the time. And get stupid all the time. And can't remember where you are. And get a bunch of car accidents because you were driving high or texting. Man, man, man. Now, let me add this about being somebody. It's only important in the first half of your life. You're doing all of this in the first half of your life to be somebody. You know what you do in the second half of your life? You work on being nobody. How about that? Why would I spend all that time to be somebody so later on in my life I can be nobody? Because 
nobody dies well. And you're going to have to die. And if you're somebody, it's really hard to die. If you're nobody, it's a hell of a lot easier to die. 